Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, The Spirit-Filled Life, in which we look at what the Bible says about the person and work of the Holy Spirit in the world and in our lives. Here is Pastor Nick. Well, today is Pentecost Sunday, and we're going to be talking about what that means and why it's so important. And this morning for Pentecost, uh, on the day of Pentecost, we're starting a new series. Now, this new series is related to the series that our last series, which was called The Risen Life, in which we spent the time after Easter looking at what Jesus did after he rose from the grave all the way up to his ascension and what his risen life tells us about what it means for us who have died to our sins in Jesus and been raised to new life in him, what his risen life means for us as we live the risen life. Well, this series is related to that. Starting on Pentecost today, we're starting a new series called The Spirit-Filled Life, in which we're looking at the person and work of the Holy Spirit for the next five weeks. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your spirit. Lord, thank you that you have not left us as orphans, but Lord, you have sent us the helper that we need to help us in all the ways that we need. And Lord, this morning we pray that you would teach us from your word, give us receptive hearts, or give us minds to understand, hearts to receive, and respond to what your word says to us today. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was January of 2002, and I was on a train rolling towards Budapest, Hungary. I was 18 years old. I had never been on my own before in my life, but I had accepted an invitation to move to Debrecen, Hungary, on the eastern side, on the eastern border of Hungary, as a missionary. Now, I didn't speak Hungarian. I didn't have a phone, and I didn't have any way to communicate with anyone. And I was on my own for the first time in my life, and I had come to this foreign country where I did not speak their language with the hopes of telling people there about Jesus. But at this point, I couldn't even do basic things for myself in this place, much less help out anybody else. Now, I knew that as soon as I arrived in Budapest, I needed to change train stations. So as soon as this train arrived, I would need to change train stations, which meant I would need to traverse this, you know, huge and to me completely unknown city where I didn't speak the language and I would need to buy tickets and get on the right train to get to my destination. Now, I had no idea how to do any of those things, but the church there had arranged for someone who lived in Budapest to meet me at the station and help me, which was good. But remember, it was 2002, so there's no social media, there's no Wi-Fi, we had no way of communicating. Like, a lot of people didn't have even cell phones at that time, and all I had was this promise that this guy's going to meet me at the station. All they told me, a South African guy is going to meet you at the train station when you get off the train, and he's going to help you which was good. So eventually, my train arrived in the station in Budapest. I got off carrying my backpack because that's all I moved there with was just a backpack. Not even like a a backpacking backpack. This is just like a normal backpack like you wear to school. That's all I had brought with me. And I, I stood on the platform and I looked around for this promised helper who was to come. 
But as I looked around, right, there's just people everywhere, just a sea of people hurrying in different directions. And I had no idea how I was supposed to find this person. I had no idea what they looked like. This person had come to help me. I didn't even know if he was there at all. Maybe he forgot. Maybe he got the day wrong. How would I know? Maybe he got in a terrible accident and died and he was never going to come. Or, or maybe he, he got confused and went to the other station instead. It was 2002. This is what we did back then. You just showed up places and in faith that people would actually be there. How am I supposed to find this guy? And how's he supposed to find me? Because in this huge mass of people, remember, he didn't know what I looked like either. So there I was on my own, totally helpless in the middle of winter. I don't have any Hungarian money. I don't have a phone. I don't have any way to call anyone that I know. What I really needed was a helper. Now, I, I never did actually find that person who had been sent to help me. I never found him. But I did eventually make my way by train to my destination. But in the process, I got ripped off by money changers. I got ripped off by corrupt taxi drivers who overcharged me and, and, uh, and ripped me off. I was lost. I was vulnerable. I had no idea what to do. I, I did eventually, by the way, meet that person who was sent there to help me that day. Uh, his name was Michael Payne, and he's the worship leader at a church in Budapest at the time, and now he lives here in Longmont, and he's our worship pastor. And, and by the way, he was there at the train station, but again, neither of us knew what the other one looked like. We must have walked right past each other, and it wasn't his fault. He, he, we didn't know what each other looked like, and there's so many people. But on that day, in that place, I really needed a helper. And that is exactly how Jesus' disciples must have felt right after he ascended into heaven. Because for the first time, they were completely alone. They were on their own. Up until that point, they had depended on Jesus to answer their questions, to give them direction, right? To do the things for them that they couldn't do for themselves. And now he's gone and he's ascended into heaven and they're completely on their own. And to make matters worse, right before Jesus had left, he told his disciples that it was up to them to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, Right? That's a pretty big job, right? Yeah, just, uh, you know, go into the world and make disciples of everybody, right? So it's a pretty big job. These guys, these guys don't even know how to take care of themselves, okay? Right? Half the time, they don't even understand what Jesus is talking about. And they, they don't even understand what he's even about. And now they're on their own, and they have to accomplish this incredible task that is way beyond any of their abilities or capabilities. And maybe some of you can relate to that feeling. Maybe you know what it feels like to be lost, or to be overwhelmed, or to feel like you don't have what it takes to do what needs to be done. Well, if that's you, then I've got good news for you today. The title of today's message is The Promised Helper. And here's what we're going to see in our text today. We're going to see that on Pentecost, the promised helper came to give birth to the church and to empower us to carry out God's mission in the world. Every week I give you a sentence. That sentence is not only our outline for studying the text, but it is just a one-sentence truth statement that is true about this text, the one-sentence summary. And I want to encourage you, write these down. In fact, write them down in one place every week, and you're going to eventually accumulate just these amazing truths every week as we study God's Word. And you're going to be remembering as you look at those sentences, the things that we studied each week. Take a picture, write it down, whatever you got to do, memorize it. This is our takeaway truth for this week. On Pentecost, the promised helper came to give birth to the church and 
to empower us to carry out God's mission in the world. So let's take that sentence and break it down as we study this passage today. First of all, on Pentecost. On Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 begins with these words. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, who's the they who were gathered together? These are Jesus' closest, committed disciples and followers. The previous chapter, chapter 1 of the book of Acts, tells us in verse 15 that on this day, there were 120 of Jesus' most committed followers who were there in Jerusalem, gathered together when this day of Pentecost came. Now, the word Pentecost, it simply means 50, because Pentecost is the 50th day after Passover. Now, you might remember that Jesus was crucified on Passover. He then resurrected from the grave three days later, and then we're told that for 40 days after his resurrection, he was here on the earth before he ascended into heaven. So if you do the math, what you find is that Jesus ascended into heaven about seven days before the day of Pentecost. So on this day of Pentecost, it's been about seven days since Jesus ascended into heaven. And these disciples and other followers of Jesus, they have been staying here together in Jerusalem. Remember, most of them are not from Jerusalem. They're from Galilee, which is pretty far away. So here they are in Jerusalem. They're staying together in like an Airbnb, right? They're hanging out and they're gathering together every day for the last seven days since Jesus ascended. And now the day of Pentecost has come. Now, Pentecost was a really big day for the Jewish people because Pentecost was the first day of the second most important feast in the Jewish calendar. So Pentecost was the first day of the second most important Jewish festival, which was called the Feast of Weeks. And the Feast of Weeks marked the end of the grain harvest. And on Pentecost, what would happen is the Jewish people would come from all over the country of Israel and also from all over the world, and they would come to present a wave offering, which means this. They would bring sheaves of wheat, like bundles of wheat, and they would come to Jerusalem, to the temple, to bring a wave offering, which is exactly what it sounds like. They'd take these sheaves of wheat, and they would wave them in the air as a way of saying thank you to God for providing for them food for the harvest for that year. So on Pentecost, the city of Jerusalem was packed with wall-to-wall people. Jews from all over the world were filling the city for this very important day. In fact, some historians would argue that there were more people in Jerusalem on Pentecost than on Passover because of the more favorable weather at the season of Pentecost. So the point is, there were a lot of people in Jerusalem at this time from all over, not only Israel, but from all over the world, Jews from everywhere. And so that brings us to the next part of our sentence. On Pentecost, the promised helper came. It says in verse 2, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now this was the fulfillment of something that Jesus had promised them, had told them, was going to happen. See, the reason the disciples were in Jerusalem, not up in Galilee, where most of them were from, the reason they're in Jerusalem is because before Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples to stay in Jerusalem and wait until he would send them some help. Wait in Jerusalem until the help comes. During the Last Supper, Jesus had talked to his disciples and he had told them something that none of them wanted to hear. 
None of them were happy to hear this. What he told them is that the time had come for him to depart, for him to leave this earth and return to his father. And of course, that is something that none of them wanted to hear. But Jesus, he knew that, of course, and he told them this. He said, do not let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And he assured them, even though I am leaving, I will not leave you as orphans. But here's what I'm going to do, he told them. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, another helper to be with you forever. The word another, it's interesting, because in the original language, the original text of the Bible, Greek text, that word is a unique word. It's the word alos, which means another, but of the same kind. So another a different one, but of the same kind. So what Jesus was promising them is that he will send them someone else who is going to help them in all the same ways that he has been helping them. The helper, Jesus says, this helper who is to come, he is the spirit of truth. And he says, you know him already because he has been with you. He has been with you and he will be in you. Jesus could tell that his disciples, of course, they were crushed by this idea that they, they would not, they, they were crushed by the idea of living their lives without Jesus by their side. And so Jesus, of course, seeing that on their faces and knowing that, he said to them, I can see that sorrow has filled your hearts because of these things that I have said. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is for your advantage that I go away. Now that would have been hard for them to believe, or even comprehend? How could it possibly be better for them for Jesus to go away? And he explained. He said, here's why. Because if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I wonder how many of you have ever wished, man, if I could have only lived back then, back then when Jesus was physically present on the earth, I could have heard his teachings. I could have seen him do miracles. It would have been so easy to believe but Jesus says, you know what? It's actually better for you. Believe it or not, it is actually better for you that I go away. Because if I go away, I will send you the helper. The helper, the spirit of truth. He is not limited to one physical location. As we go from this place and we go to our various different homes, the good news is that this helper, the spirit, will go with us to our homes, right? In other words, the spirit can be with people in India, and in Russia, and in Colorado, all at the same time. In order for Jesus' mission to bring salvation to the ends of the earth, it was necessary that Jesus depart physically and send another helper. And Jesus told them what this helper would do when he would come. He said this, when he comes, this helper, he will teach you all things, and he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The helper, Jesus said, would also help them to accomplish this mission that he had given them to go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. He said, the helper is going to come and he's going to help you accomplish that mission. And here's how. First of all, he's going to go before you and he's going to speak to people's hearts. And he's going to bring about conviction in their hearts about sin and righteousness and judgment. But the other way that he's going to help you accomplish this mission is by empowering you to do this thing that God has called you to do. He's going to empower you with the power you need to carry this out. And that's why Jesus told them. He said, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city, stay in Jerusalem, until you are clothed with power from on high. 
So on the day of Pentecost, when those who were gathered together in that room, that upstairs room where they were gathered, they heard the sound of this rushing wind. They knew exactly what was happening. And you know why? Because the word for wind in both Greek and Hebrew is the same word as the word for spirit. It's the same word, wind and spirit. So as they heard this wind, they knew exactly that this is what we've been waiting for. This is what Jesus said would happen. But you know what? It wasn't only Jesus who had promised that this, this would happen, that the Holy Spirit would come in this new and unique way. This is something that had been prophesied long before by the prophets Joel and the prophet Ezekiel and the prophet Jeremiah. And so in Acts chapter 2, we read there that as this sound of this wind came, as the believers responded by worshiping God in these different languages, it was a ruckus. It was loud. It was noisy. And there they are in this upper room. The city of Jerusalem's packed. And so what happens? Down on the street below, people begin to gather. They begin to look up towards this room where this noise is coming from. What is going on up there? And so what happens? Peter he takes this opportunity. He opens the window and looks down on the crowd of people who have gathered below to see what's going on. And he begins to speak to them and address them. And he tells them, what you're hearing up here, this, this, all this noise, what's going on up here, this is the fulfillment of God's promise through the prophet Joel that in the last days God would pour out his spirit. So who is this helper? Who is this promised Holy Spirit? Well, if we look through the Bible, here's what we can know. Two things I want you to know about the Holy Spirit that we see in the Bible. Number one, the Holy Spirit is a person. And number two, the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is God. Let's talk about each of those for a second. The Holy Spirit is a person. As opposed to saying that the Holy Spirit is an impersonal force, like gravity or centrifugal force, right? The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force by which God does things. No, the Holy Spirit is a person. And that's important because you can't have a personal relationship with uh, an impersonal force. But you can have a personal relationship with a person. And so the Bible tells us that the, the Holy Spirit is a person with whom we can have a relationship. Furthermore, the Bible tells us, just on this idea that the Holy Spirit is a person, that the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit has personal qualities. For example, the Holy Spirit has intelligence. The Holy Spirit knows things and thinks. The Holy Spirit, we're told, has a personal will. The Holy Spirit makes decisions, in other words. The Holy Spirit also has emotions. You can grieve the Spirit, and the Spirit expresses love. Furthermore, the, the Bible says, the Bible speaks about the Holy Spirit in personal terms, as a person. For example, it says that people lie to the Holy Spirit. You, you don't lie to a potted plant, right? Why would you do that? But you lie to a person. So the Holy Spirit's a person. People lie to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit also does things that a person can do. The Holy Spirit speaks. The Holy Spirit strives. The Spirit intercedes. The Spirit guides. The Spirit works miracles. But you know what? Not only is the Spirit a person, but importantly, the Holy Spirit is God. That's what we see in the Bible. So sometimes people wonder, you know, is the Holy Spirit something other than God, like a, a force that God uses to accomplish things in the world? But the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit, for example, has the attributes of God. For example, the Holy Spirit is omnipresent, everywhere at the same time. The Holy Spirit is omnipotent, all-powerful. And the Holy Spirit is omniscient, all-knowing. Furthermore, the Spirit performs the actions 
which only God can perform. For example, the Spirit, we're told, cleanses us of unrighteousness. The Spirit was involved in the creation of the world. God created the world, and we're also told the Holy Spirit created the world. When the Spirit speaks, the Bible says that God is speaking. Not only does the Spirit have the attributes of God, but the Spirit is also referred to as God interchangeably throughout the Bible. So it'll say something like, the Spirit did this, and then it'll say that God did that thing. Or that God did this, and then this, it will say that the Spirit did that same thing. In other words, it's used interchangeably. For this reason, one of the earliest Christian councils, the first council of Constantinople, met in 381 AD, and they didn't come up with the doctrine of the of the Trinity, what they did is they signed a statement which said, as leaders of the church, as Bible scholars, we all acknowledge and agree that the Bible teaches that God is triune, that he is a Trinity. What we mean when we say that God is a Trinity is this. We believe that there is one God who is eternally present in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, they are distinct persons. There's one God in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. But the Son is not the Father. And the Father is not the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Son. They are distinct persons who do different things. They have different functions, and yet they are of the same essence because together they are the one God. So what is the Spirit's role, and what is the Spirit's function? Well, there are three distinct relationships that the Holy Spirit has with different groups of people. Let me walk you through those three distinct relationships. I think this will be really helpful in helping you understand and also to read the Bible. There are three distinct relationships, and those relationships can be summarized with three prepositions. Three prepositions. You ready? The first one is with, and then in, and then upon. So three prepositions, with, in, and upon. Let's walk through those. First of all, the Holy Spirit is with all people. The Holy Spirit is with all people. Now, what does that mean? In John 14, verse 17, Jesus told his disciples that the Holy Spirit, he says, you know him because up until this point, he has been with you. He has been with you. And he told them, what is the work of the Holy Spirit with all people? Here's what it is. He says in John 16, he says that as the Holy Spirit is with all people, here's what he's doing. He's bringing about conviction of sin righteousness and judgment. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. In other words, the Holy Spirit is at work in the world, in every country, in every tribe, with your neighbors, with your family members, and he is whispering in people's ears, if you will, the ears of their hearts. He's speaking to their hearts about three things. The fact, number one, that they are sinners and they have fallen short of God's perfect standard. That's the first thing. He's bringing conviction that we are sinners who have fallen short of God's perfect standard. And secondly, that God is righteous. And if God is righteous and we are sinners, then that means, therefore, the third part, there is coming a day of judgment when we will stand before God to give account. All of us will give account for the things that we have done. Now, I want to say this. The purpose of this conviction is not just to make you feel bad about yourself, to make you feel like you're a loser and you've blown it. No, no, no. The purpose of this conviction is very positive. Let me show you why. The purpose of this conviction is to draw you to Jesus by bringing you to a realization 
about why you need a Savior. Listen, if you don't realize first why you need a Savior, then if I tell you that the Savior has come, you're not going to care. You know, okay, cool, I guess. I don't know why I need it, so you're not that thrilled about it. But listen, if you understand why you desperately need a Savior, then when you hear that the Savior has come, that's really good news. Okay, so the Spirit is bringing us this conviction. Why? To bring us to a realization of why we need a Savior, to drive us to Jesus so that we will embrace what Jesus has done for us in order to save us. Just this past weekend, we did this men's conference, and I talked with a a young man who came up to me, and he told me, I feel guilty. I feel guilty about the things that I've done in my life. I feel guilty about the things that I'm currently doing. I feel bad about these things, and I don't know what to do about it. And he says, what do I do to get rid of this sense of guilt? And I said, first of all, let me tell you this. A lot of people, they, they, they feel that, oh, guilt is a bad thing to have. You know what I say when somebody tells me that they feel guilty? I say, good. Let me explain why. I say, good. You know why? Because that pain, that pain of that guilt, then that conviction that you feel, that's a sign of life, man. That's a sign of life. Think about it. If I poke you with a needle and you don't feel anything, That's not good at all. That means that something's wrong. That means that there's a problem. You know why? Dead people don't feel anything. They don't. But you know what? If I poke you and it hurts, that's a sign of life. That's a sign that things are working the way they're supposed to. But here's the other thing. If you feel that pain of guilt and that pinprick of conviction, you can't just stay there. You have to do something with it. You have to do something with that conviction of your sin. If all you ever do is just feel bad and then that's all, right? If you just feel bad and that's it, that doesn't accomplish anything. The purpose of the conviction is not to make you feel bad. It's to drive you to God, to drive you to God. And here's why. Because the Bible tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the goal. That's it right there. That's the purpose of the conviction. Listen, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, Paul the Apostle talks about this, and he says, Godly grief, godly pain, that, that uh, sorrow over our sin, it produces repentance that leads to, leads to salvation without regret. How many of you want to live your life without any regrets? Here's how to do it. But he says, look, but worldly grief produces death. You know what worldly grief is? Worldly grief is exactly that. You just feel bad, and then you try to make yourself not feel bad. But you don't do anything with that guilt. You're just like, oh man, I'm a loser. Okay, I guess I'll just move on, right? It's, it's not allowing that conviction to drive you to God as it's meant to do. But the purpose of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit is to drive you to God so you can be cleansed of your sins by embracing the Savior who God has provided for you in Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is doing this work all the time of bringing about conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment all over the world with all people. But listen, not everybody responds in the same way to this conviction of the Holy Spirit. Some people, when they feel this conviction, some of us, rather than turning to God when we feel that pain of of guilt, that tinge of conviction, rather than turning to God and repenting and embracing the salvation that God has provided for us in Jesus, instead of doing that, you know what we do sometimes? Sometimes what we do is we harden our hearts. And that's a very dangerous thing to do because if you continually harden your heart, to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, what happens over time is that you develop what the Bible calls a calloused heart. 
Just think about that. Think about times when you've built up calluses on your hands from using tools or playing the guitar or gardening, or maybe you built up calluses on your feet from, from doing a lot of walking. What happens with a callus is that something which used to be sensitive and soft becomes hard and unfeeling. It becomes desensitized. Whereas it used to feel, it no longer feels. It doesn't mean that the conviction is no longer there. It just means that you cease to feel it as strongly because you built up a callus through continually hardening your heart. And that's a dangerous place to be, though. That's why the Bible tells us, if you hear God's voice speaking to you today, do not harden your heart. Because the more you do that, the more you become calloused. And the more you lose your sensitivity to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit until you finally get to that place where, even though the Holy Spirit's still working in this way, you just no longer feel anything. Listen, none of us enjoys pain. But if you think about it, pain is an incredible gift. It's a really good gift. Let me, let me explain why. Pain keeps us from hurting ourselves. When something hurts, it, your nerves are sending a message to your brain that says, stop doing that thing because it's going to destroy you. Imagine if you didn't feel any pain. How many people have hurt themselves? Why? Because they've used alcohol or they've used drugs to a degree where they no longer feel any pain. And then they do things that actually injure themselves because they don't feel any pain. They don't feel that signal going to their brain. They have no indicator that something's going wrong, that they shouldn't be doing this because it's damaging their body. The conviction of the Holy Spirit does that same thing for your soul. It's that warning sign to your soul. Hey! And the purpose is that we would respond by turning to God and casting ourselves upon his mercy. Well, that's the first relationship with the Holy Spirit. That's with all people. But secondly, the Holy Spirit is in those who believe in Jesus. Those who believe in Jesus. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, verse 17. Remember that verse? He says, you know the Spirit because he has been with you but what do you say after that? But he will be, future tense, he will be in you. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, this is something that was prophesied in the Old Testament by the prophet Ezekiel and the prophet Jeremiah. Ezekiel said that one day God was going to put his spirit within his people. And when that happened, they would be transformed. They would be changed fundamentally from the inside out. But for people in the Old Testament, that indwelling of the Holy Spirit was still a future event. It was something that they in their lifetimes never got to experience. It was only after Jesus died and resurrected that we read in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, that Jesus met with his disciples. And here's what it says there in John 20, verse 22. It says that he breathed upon them. And by the way, the word for wind, spirit, and breath are all the same word in both Greek and Hebrew. So Jesus breathes upon them, and what does he say? Receive the Holy Spirit. Now listen, if Jesus breathes on you and says receive the Holy Spirit, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit, okay? And now at this moment, the disciples received the Holy Spirit within them. It was at this moment that they were born again. Now next week, we're going to go into more depth on this. We're going to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. So don't miss that. You're going to want to be here for that for sure. But here's what you need to know. Only those who have put their faith in Jesus have the Holy Spirit within them. And 
every person who has put their faith in Jesus has the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. So only those who believe in Jesus, but also every person who has put their faith in Jesus has the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. Because the Bible tells us that when you put your faith in Jesus, God has put his seal on us and he has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. As a guarantee. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. It's his guarantee that you belong to him, that you are his. Well, now that brings us to the third part of our sentence. So I've talked to you about two relationships. Now we're going to go back to our sentence. You ready? Here's our sentence, and it brings us to the third part. On Pentecost, the promised helper came to give birth to the church. Here in Acts chapter 2, as Peter preaches to the crowd that's gathered there on these crowded streets of Jerusalem from that upper window where they're located, he tells them, he talks to them about Jesus. Look at what he says. He says, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And he says, and you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And it says in verse 37, that when the people heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And check out what he says next. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is what it means to be saved. It means that you repent of your sins and embrace Jesus as your Savior and Lord, and you're forgiven of your sins, and the Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside of you. And look at what it says in verse 41 of Acts chapter 2. It says that that day, 3,000 people believed and were baptized. And that brings us to the final part of our sentence, which is this. On Pentecost, the promised helper came to give birth to the church, and to empower us to carry out God's mission in the world. You see, we've only talked about two of those three relationships with the Holy Spirit. Here's the third one. In addition to being with all people and being in those who believe in Jesus, there is a third relationship with the Holy Spirit, and that is this. The Holy Spirit is upon some people at different times, to empower them to do what God has called them to do. Now, here's what's interesting. Remember how in John chapter 20, Jesus breathed on his disciples and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And at that point, they received the Holy Spirit within them. Well, you know what happened right after that? Jesus said, okay, now I want you to stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. Well, wait a second. That doesn't make any sense, right? Didn't they just receive the Holy Spirit? He said, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says, now wait for the Holy Spirit. Now, how does that make any sense? Here's how it makes sense. Because it's talking about two distinct relationships. Here's why. Two distinct relationships with the Holy Spirit. When Jesus breathed upon them, they received the Spirit in them. That's when they were born again, the indwelling of the Spirit. But then they were to wait in Jerusalem for the Spirit to come upon them for the purpose of empowering them to carry out the mission that Jesus had given them. Notice what it says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It says that Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
Now, it's interesting because throughout the Old Testament, this phrase, the Spirit came upon a person, is used. And that's important because, remember, in the Old Testament, this is before the Spirit ever indwelled anybody. So before the Spirit was in people, we read in the Old Testament that the Spirit came upon people. For example, it says in the book of Judges, the Spirit came upon Gideon to accomplish this mission God had given him. We also read the same thing. The Spirit came upon Samson. The Spirit came upon David. The Spirit came upon Elisha. And all through and through, through the books of Judges and First and Second Samuel, through the books of the prophets, the Spirit would come upon people to empower them to do what God had called them to do. And so Jesus here, he's promising his disciples and us that the Holy Spirit will come upon us to empower us to carry out his callings that he has placed on our lives. And that is incredibly encouraging. Incredibly encouraging because it means that when God calls you to do something, he doesn't just say, all right, here's the job now. Good luck. I hope you do a good job, right? No, no, no. He says, I promise to give you the power that you need to accomplish this task. And we're going to talk more about that in detail in the weeks to come. But this is an important, fundamental outline and understanding of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Friends, it is because God loves you that he sent the Holy Spirit to help you in the areas where you need help. It is because God loves you that he sent the Spirit to help you. Maybe for some of you here today, right now, the Holy Spirit is convicting you about some sin in your life. Maybe he's convicting you to draw you to Jesus. If that's you, I want to encourage you right now to not harden your heart to that work of the Holy Spirit. Instead, I want to encourage you to respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit by turning to the Lord in repentance and faith in what Jesus has done for you and by surrendering your life to him. Maybe there are others of you and the area where you need help is that you need help for God to change you. You need help for God to change you. You need God to transform you fundamentally, to do a deep work inside of you. That's part of the Holy Spirit's work within you after you have put your faith in Jesus. And maybe there are others of you, and you need God's help. You need God's help to accomplish the callings and the, the ministries that he's put on your life, the things he's called you to do in your work and in your home and in your service to the Lord. You need his help to accomplish those callings he's placed on your life. You can ask for the Holy Spirit to come upon you to empower you to fulfill that calling. Listen, the good news is that God loves you and he has given you the Holy Spirit to be your helper in all of these areas where you need help. So may we be those who respond to the Holy Spirit by embracing what God has done for us in Jesus. And may we walk in the new life we have in him by the power of the Holy Spirit. On Pentecost, the promised helper came to give birth to the church and to empower us to carry out God's mission in the world. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.